0: We're continuing our series today, uh, AD 30, which is basically a somewhat of a chronological view of the life of Jesus Christ, and I've entitled our message today, Living on a Prayer, which is from a famous rock song. Sorry about that. Some of you are thinking it, and I must admit, it is. I'm not sure how much the authors of that song prayed, but we will. Prayer sounds like a simple subject, and it's anything but simple. Larry Crabb, who's a Christian author and psychologist, sums it up well. And he said this, when I was 10, uh, I first heard Matthew 21, 22, where Jesus, who never lies, says this, if you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. It was the whatever model of prayer. Believe, ask for whatever you want, and it's yours. So he said, I remember running outside, standing on our driveway, closing my eyes real tight and praying, God, I want to fly like Superman, and I believe you can do it. So I'll jump, and you take it from there. I jumped four times. Each time landed half a second later, half a foot farther down the driveway. I had believed, I had asked, just like Jesus said, But I didn't receive, and thus began my 50 year journey of confusion about prayer. That's a pretty honest reflection from a pretty devout Christian. Some of us feel the same as him. God's promises, at times, when you look at the plain words of Scripture, God's promises seem to be more abundant than His deliverables. He seems at times to overpromise because when we try out these prayer promises, which seem so expansive, it doesn't always seem to take place the way we're expecting. And so we keep trying to figure out whatever formula will move God to keep the promises that seem to be pretty clear in His Word. I love this story. little boy is writing a letter to God about the Christmas presents that he badly wants. And so he's trying to negotiate with God. He's trying to figure out the prayer formula. He's got some Christmas presents picked out and he wrote this I've been good for six months now, he said to God. So he's thinking that prayer is sort of the quid pro quo method. You do certain things for God, he'll do certain things for you. After a moment's reflection, he crossed out, I've been good for six months, and he wrote three months. After another pause, he crossed that out and he said, I've been good for two weeks. Then there was another pause, and he crossed that out too because he recognized he wasn't that good. And if his answered prayers were based on his behavior, he was going to have a problem. So he got up from the table. He went over to the little nativity scene that, you know, it was Christmas time. The nativity scene had figures of Mary and Joseph. He picked up the figure of Mary, mother of Jesus. He went back to his writing pad and he started again. Dear God, if you ever want to see your mother again, I love that kid. Blackmailing God. At least he's honest. He's confused like the rest of us a little bit. How do we get God to come through in the ways it looks like his word says he will? Sometimes we want to give up on prayer. Maybe it's just a ritual that we go through to stay connected to God. Or maybe the world is like a horse race that's been fixed or a game that's been fixed. Nothing's really going to change the outcomes. Everyone competes thinking they can win, but the fix is in, and the fix is actually God's plan as we see that also talked about in the Bible, which doesn't seem to be at times that able to be changed. So if you emphasize God's plan and that God has known this from eternity past, you could just conclude we we look like pawns on a divine chessboard, And, and maybe prayer doesn't really change as much as we think it does. And I've gone down that mental path a few times before. But then we hear stories that give us faith and that reinvigorate our perspectives on prayer, like this, the diary of George Mueller, who I believe was one of the founders of the Plymouth Brethren movement, which this church is affiliated with. He's a Christian social reformer from the Victorian era, and he chronicles a lot about prayer. In November 1844, he says, I began to pray for the conversion of five individuals. I prayed every night without a single intermission, whether sick or in health, on land, on sea, whatever the pressure of my engagements might be. Eighteen months elapsed before the first of the five was converted. I thank God I prayed for the other four. Five more years elapsed, the second was converted. I thank God for the second, prayed for the other three. Day by day, I continued to pray for them. Six years passed before the third was converted. I thank God for the three went on praying for the other two. Those two remained unconverted. 36 years later, he wrote that the other two, sons of one of his friends, still never came to faith in Jesus Christ. And so he wrote, but I hope in God. I pray on, and I look for the answer. They haven't come to Jesus yet, but they will. In 1897, 52 years after he began to pray, These two men were finally converted after he died. Mueller understood what Jesus meant when he told his disciples that they should always pray and not give up. Now, George Mueller was also known for opening multiple orphanages. Many of you have maybe read his biography, opened a lot of orphanages in the 1800s. I'm not sure why all these children were parentless at that time, but eventually he was carrying over over some period of time for over 10,000 orphans, it was a monstrous nonprofit. 10,000 orphans. He refused. Think about this every orphanage like that today would have somebody with a development job going around asking major donors for money. He did not. He refused to make public appeals for money. He wouldn't ask for money. People knew about him, but he refused to make appeals for money. So stories about him abound. There's one story about where he's sitting at dinner with a table full of orphans and probably his wife, and he's thanking God for food when the table is absolutely empty. And then when he's done praying, there's a knock at the door, bread delivery is there, and the milk truck broke down right in front of the orphanage. Donated all the milk. When I read things like that, it reinvigorates my faith that the fix isn't in. That that God wants to say yes. Is that kind of life possible for us today? I want to read Matthew chapter 6 beginning in verse six. If you have a Bible near you, it's on page four, the New Testament, the numbering in the Bibles near you begins again about two-thirds of the way through when we hit the New Testament. So Matthew six is on page four. And we're gonna begin with verse six. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your father who is in secret, and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you're praying, don't use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they'll be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask. Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Then there's this little tag that I'm going to explain a little bit later. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. If you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive your transgressions. We'll explain what that was intended to mean. Just three points, or actually two points today, and a few applications. First, prayer, as Jesus described, is an important part of the private devotion that God rewards. And the emphasis here is on private devotion. Much of what we do as Christians, we live out publicly in front of others. And Jesus was actually quite concerned about this issue because it was twisting the way people actually exhibited their devotion to God. It's a very interesting part of the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the Sermon on the Mount was probably not a sermon. It was probably multiple days of Jesus' teaching. These are probably the highlights. We're not sure. Looks like he begins with a small crowd of his disciples, and it looks like he ends with some pretty big multitudes. So we assume there's some things that have taken place. He's probably there for a few days, and these are the highlights. Not everything he said. And this central part deals with the spiritual disciplines that were common in Jesus' day. So just the rituals that they lived out in their private devotion to God, and those would have been three. We would talk about, if we talked about spiritual disciplines, we might talk about these and others, but they were giving, praying, and fasting. Those were the three primary sort of private spiritual disciplines in Jewish culture. They were meant to be the private, emphasis on private, ways that one met God and demonstrated your devotion to God. And as Jesus mentions, each of the three, he is critiquing each one of them because of how what was intended to be a private part of our spiritual lives had become very public, and so our motives begin to change when other people see what we're doing and it's no longer private. Now, I don't want to make a big deal about this just because it's not the primary part of the sermon, But Jesus makes a big deal out of it throughout this whole chapter. So I do want to examine it because it's a big deal to Jesus. And here's one way of looking at it. Our private expressions of worship and devotion are the best way to tell the truth about us and our spiritual devotion. You know, you've often heard the phrase, you know, character is what you do when nobody's looking. Well, it's sort of that way with spiritual disciplines. Our private expressions of worship and devotion tell the real truth about us. They're the most honest way to analyze our spirituality because nobody sees them. God alone is the watcher. They're the 90% of the iceberg that nobody sees. It's underneath the waterline. It's the true strength of an iceberg. That's what our private spiritual life is intended to be. And in this culture, all three of them, it had been radically twisted. They'd become very public. So God was having a hard time telling where people's hearts were really at. We began with almsgiving. That was the highest value of the three. I believe the word for almsgiving and the word righteous are like cognates or very well well, uh, connected. And so Jesus, this was a big deal. Giving to the poor in that culture was a huge part of their religious devotion. And Jesus accused them of doing it to the sound of trumpets. That happens right before the passage we read. Now there was no such passage where they go in the temple and give and they heard trumpet sound. We don't know of anything like that historically. The offering containers actually did look like trumpets. They were trumpet shaped. Might have meant that. But he probably is simply using hyperbole to accuse them of wanting to be announced by trumpets. In other words, you have people walking into the temple and they're making sure that in an era without paper money, you know, everyone's hearing every coin roll around on its way down into that trumpet-shaped basket. And he talked about fasting right after he talks about prayer. We don't think about fasting much. There's actually not a lot in the Bible about it. But the Jews were very devout fasters. Many Jews fasted Mondays and Thursdays, dawn to sunset. So I think they could eat before that, and they might eat at the end of the day, but they would fast during the day, Mondays and Thursdays, dawn to sunset. Now what's interesting is those were also the public market days. So it was like Jewish stampede on Mondays and Thursdays you know when you're on the stampede grounds and everyone's got their food trucks there or their stands there and they're selling food and the jews who were fasting during that time would you know they'd go to the stampede grounds and they would look all unkempt and their clothes are in disarray and their hair's a mess and they've whitened their faces so that people would know they're fasting well they're no longer fasting for god they're fasting to be seen So what was intended to be this private ritual had become so public that Jesus says, if you're this way with giving and and you just want to be seen by others, then the reality is you've got your reward on earth. That's your reward, other people saw you. If you're going into the marketplace while you're fasting and you've whitened your face so you look pale because you're hungry, he said, you've got your reward because there's nothing in your heart. That's not your devotion to God. You just want to be seen by others. So he says, your reward is you were seen by others. Good job, you've got a better reputation among them. But he said, I'm not paying attention to it. God isn't paying attention to it. Same thing with prayer. They prayed a lot. They were good prayers. It meant very little. So there were a couple of daily prayers that the religious, the devout people would use in that day. One was called the Shema it's a part of Deuteronomy and the book of Numbers. It was a recitation of about 20 verses, so they memorized about 20 verses. And the word Shema means to hear. So it began like, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. It was recited two times a day, these 20 verses from these two books in the Old Testament. They had the Shemina Ezra, which, is, which means the 18, and you would think it would be 18 prayers. It's actually, the Shemina Ezra means the 18, and it's actually 19, so they tagged one on, but didn't change the name. Kind of like in the US, the Big Ten, you know, the big football conference, the Big Ten went to 12 teams, and I think they still call it the Big Ten. Like, it really doesn't make sense. So anyway, they had the same thing with their prayers, and they would repeat those three times a day. Now think about that. 20 verses twice a day, 19 prayers three times a day and they had other prayers as well these people prayed there were set times for prayer so these set times for prayer meant you prayed wherever you were when when sort of you know the you know we used to have when i was a kid at noon the the fire station would sound off its alarm i think just to let us know it was noon and just to show that they were still there and it was noon. And so, if that was one of the times, I mean, that's when they would pray. You know, they, they knew maybe there was something that happened publicly. Uh, you know, when you think of Muslim cultures, you, you hear this sound at certain times of the day, it's the time for prayer. Maybe they had that. But at those times of day, they prayed wherever they were. And here's the problem it meant they began to position themselves to be seen because they didn't pray like you and I do in a restaurant. You know, we get into a restaurant and we're in a Western culture and a little bit of a post-Christian era and we don't want to really show people that we're really Christians out loud. No, I'm not the kind of person to stand on my chair in a restaurant so everyone knows I'm a Christian. That's a little embarrassing to me. And I don't really want to be with you if you do that. But I also don't want to be ashamed of God. And there's people who kind of do, you know, the drop the fork prayer. You know, it's like, okay, Lord, thank you for this food. Please bless it our bodies. In Jesus' name, amen. You pick up the fork and, you know, nobody knows what you did. These, these Israelites were not the drop-the-fork type. They would make sure they were positioned in a public place. They would pray out loud, hands out, palms up, head bowed, and they would just talk to God with these recited prayers. And Jesus said two things about this. He called them actors. The word's a little harsher. He called them hypocrites, but that is Old Greek for actor. Actor. And it means one who plays a role and sees the world as their stage. So he says, You're just seeing the world as your stage where you're praying to be seen by other people. He says, If you're doing that, you've got your reward. It's the fact that other people see you and they think you're really spiritual, but I'm not impressed. And the result, he says, was that the applause of men is the only reward coming. It applies to all of these issues of our private devotion. And I don't want to spend a lot of time with this. We're wrapping this up. But my question is, how much of your private Christian life really exists? How much of my private Christian life really exists that nobody sees? What's below the waterline? What's the rest of the iceberg? Because that's what God cares about. Much of the rest, we can have ulterior motives. People see it. it. Our motives become mixed. We like being seen sometimes. It's like Steve Marston and I. You know, if, 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 uh, if the sermon goes really well, afterwards in the lobby, and somebody compliments him on the sermon, he's like, you know, well, that's the other guy. But we also do that if somebody criticizes something. If somebody doesn't like something, and they come to me and they say, I didn't really like the sermon. I say, no, that's the other guy that shaves his head. We're seen, much of our spiritual lives are seen, they're observed by others, and when that becomes a motive, God says he can't judge our inner hearts anymore, or he judges them harshly. Our true inner character is often what goes unseen, and I hate to say it, that means most of us, including your pastor, are not as good as you think we are because so much of our life is public where we're always putting our best foot forward. It's like our engagements with others are like dating. You know what dating is? It's the great deception. It is. We're putting our best foot forward. and God says what really matters, the easiest way for him to judge us is our private life where there's only a motive to be with him. Second, and more directly on prayer, prayer as Jesus described, covers every facet of our spiritual and relational lives. And as Jesus gives us what I'm gonna call this pattern for prayer, he covers our relationship with God, our worship of God, submission to his will and being part of his will. We ask for things, we confess. It extends to our horizontal relationships with others and we, we pray for deliverance. We pray for God's power in our lives. And we're gonna walk through all of that. Here's my point. This prayer that Jesus gives us In my opinion, and scholars disagree on this, I'm not sure how much they disagree on this, but clearly throughout church history we've used this prayer differently in different Christian traditions, but I believe this prayer is meant to be a prayer pattern or outline, not a memorized prayer that we recite just by itself. Now, I don't have any problem if you do that, I do it too, but but I wanna get to what Jesus was intending. Because when we become Christians, sometimes we struggle to know how to pray. And we might hear people give different advice on that. You know, there's the acrostic acts, you know, where we're, it's adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication. I remember that from when I was a kid. People would talk about the different elements of prayer. I don't know why we just didn't look at the Lord's Prayer because I think that's what he was intending to do. And so when, when before we know that, we're thinking, well, is prayer confession? Is it just asking and getting? Is it manipulating God like that little boy earlier in the sermon who took Mary, mother of Jesus, hostage? Is it praise because we see that in the Bible? Is it thanksgiving? And here's the deal. Jesus answered that. He didn't answer the question about necessarily just what we should pray, but how we should pray. And here's how we should pray. It might include some of the what as well. Now, one of the reasons I don't think Jesus intended this to be just a memorized prayer, actually, I'll give you a couple reasons. One of them is he's just criticized the practice of memorized prayers that were done in public and sort of lose their meaning over time because when we memorize things and we just recite them, it's often hard to keep our hearts engaged in them. But more importantly, Jesus repeats this prayer elsewhere. So one of the things I don't appreciate about Jesus, he was kind of an itinerant preacher. And so even though he's God, he probably only preached, you know, his top 20 sermons most of the places he went, which is not fair when you're God and you only have to perfect 20 sermons. But he's preaching a sermon like this in another place. And when he gets to the Lord's Prayer, and he does this in Luke chapter 11, guess what he does? He doesn't say it the same way. So if this was meant to be something we memorized word for word and we only said it that way, why is the Lord's Prayer in Luke 11 about half of what it is in Mark chapter six, or in Matthew chapter six? He doesn't even say it the same way. And the doxology, which is the tag on the Lord's Prayer in Matthew, isn't even included in Luke. So I think this is intended to be more of an outline for prayer. Now if you're saying, Paul, are you saying I should memorize this prayer and say it that way, like at a funeral or on the Titanic if it's sinking? No, I'm not saying that, and I didn't just watch Titanic. But anyway, I'm not saying that, because I do it too. But to me, it's a more rushed way of getting through prayer. I believe the best way to handle this is to look at these lines, line by line, to pray the line, and then fill in how that applies to your life and your condition and what you are trying to connect with God on at that moment. So let's walk through it. First, relationship. Our Father, who art in heaven. You know, what's interesting about this is The name of God was typically unspoken in ancient times in ancient Israel. I mean, they had such a reverence for the name of God, they would sort of avoid saying it out loud. To say God's name, to say like Yahweh or Jehovah, felt irreverent. It lacked respect and awe. So there was this great awe, which also leads to a sense of distance between ourselves and God. Jesus walks into that culture as God in the flesh and he turned that concept upside down father, for him to even say father, was a whole new level of intimacy that you would never have seen in Jewish culture. Now, the Greek word is pater, but if you talk to, if you talk to scholars, if you read scholars on this, most of them believe Jesus probably was giving the sermon in Aramaic, and he probably would have actually used the word Abba, which he does use elsewhere between him and the father, and the apostles use of our relationship with God. Abba actually means daddy. It's not like father. It's Daddy. Imagine that. The Son of God comes into this world. He's talking to people who hesitated to use the name of God out loud. And he says, When you begin to pray, I want you to understand the relationship you have with your with God. I want you to begin by saying, Daddy, Daddy. Not a God far off, not a God who's aloof, not an uncaring, apathetic God. Rather, a daddy in heaven, a daddy who rules the universe that he created, our daddy, but the one in heaven. That opens the door of access and faith. When you're not going to God, but you're going to dad, I need something. I need you. Jesus said, you're talking to your dad. Hallowed be your name. Now, there's an element of worship here. The word that's used here, it's like um, though You can just forget that. But agiadzo is a cognate of agias, which means to be holy. So it's the idea of you're setting God's name apart. You're setting God apart. You're recognizing that he's wholly different than we are. And he's ethically perfect and pure. Hallowed be your name. Well, what name is that? Well, there are many names for God. It was almost like he was saying hallowed be your character, your attributes, which we see as reflected in God's name. See, a name back then was more than an identifying label at birth. Names represented character and a child's nature. So actually, a lot of people in the Bible times had more than one name. And we actually see that in the scriptures. And names were changed and they were added at key milestones, key moments. You see this, you know, Simon, who's also named Cephas, and what was his new name? Peter. And Peter means rock. Because he was gonna be the foundation of what Jesus built. Jacob, you know what Jacob means? Jacob is coming out of the womb His brother's born first, Esau. Jacob's coming out of the womb second. And these twins didn't have the typical, you know, three to five minutes apart. Jacob's hanging on to Esau's heel on the way out which in that culture was a big deal who came out first because the firstborn got a double portion of the economic benefit for just being first. And so it's as if Jacob in that culture is making sure he gets out first, but he can't. He's hanging on to his brother's foot as he comes out of mom. And so what'd they name him? You little manipulator. And when you look at his life, he didn't need to be renamed. Oh my goodness, he was a stinker. Jacob was one of the most manipulative, dishonest people in the Old Testament until God got a hold of his life. And what did he get renamed? Israel, one who wrestles with God. When the manipulation sort of came to an end and all that energy which he had used to manipulate situations he was in, he grabbed the angel of God, who might have been a pre incarnate appearance of Jesus, and he wouldn't let him go until God blessed him and God said, you're going to be Israel. You wrestled with God and he was a changed person. So this is where we acknowledge God's nature and attributes, what his names mean, Yahweh or Jehovah, Lord, the God who is there in our lives. In the Old Testament, I, I want to do a series at some point on the names of God because there's such great stories behind them of Israel needed God, God provided for him, and there he was called Jehovah Jireh, the Lord provides, and there's all kinds of stories like that in the Old Testament where when they discover something new about God, there's a new name for God because it's his character that is represented in the name. And so when we pray we're acknowledging who God is to us it's a part of our worship of him submission this might not be the best word for this but thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven I don't think this is just submission but I think it's also becoming a part of what God is doing we know that God controls what goes on in heaven there's no chaos there but there's chaos on earth I think we'd all agree with that We don't have any doubt about who's in charge in heaven and what's going on and whether people are showing up on time, whether the angels are doing what they're supposed to do, whether the people who've gone to heaven are behaving. My mom's there. I'm sure she's behaving. She's probably a little concerned about church music these days, but she's behaving. (laughs) They're singing music up there she is uncomfortable with. I guarantee it, she's still not used to it. But heaven is under control. But this earth isn't, is it? We look at this world and we, we wonder, God, are, I mean, have you left us? Are you, are you managing this as the sovereign Lord of the universe? We, we try to understand how, how God can be Lord over all of his creation, and then we see that Satan is the prince of the power of, this, of the air, of this world. I mean, you know, he's allowed Satan to do a lot of stuff, and we live with fallen human natures. What we're asking God to do is, your will be done in heaven or on earth just like in heaven. We want to see you take control of this world. It's a plea to move God's hand. It's a plea to make sure our lives are where God wants them, that we're being used. It's a plea for our relatives to come to faith. It's a plea for our grandchildren to come to faith. It's a plea for our neighbors to come to faith. We want God's reign and rule to be distributed in this world just like it is in heaven. We want to be in God's will for our future. We ask for future direction. We ask God for help with decisions. Maybe where things aren't clear, We're we're just saying, God, I want to do what you want me to do. And if there's not going to be a clear circumstance indicating what that is, I'm going to move forward. But I want to move forward in faith saying, I want you to lead and guide my life. We submit to God and we're trying to become a part of what he's doing in the world. I love this next part, petition. I I probably, I I like the word dependence a little better. We're asking for things, but it's give us this day our daily bread. I love this because of what's behind it. So this is probably alluding to what happened in Exodus 16 in the Old Testament. The children of Israel have left Egypt. You have the plagues on Egypt, these, you know, sort of natural disasters on steroids where God is humbling the nation of Egypt and allowing Israel to leave slavery, coming out of Egypt, so Israel's in the wilderness. They're out of Egypt. You know, they've been slaves. They're not a well-trained army. They're kind of a mess. And now they've run out of provisions. And so you've got a group of people who have not been used to being in charge of their own lives, not a lot of leadership developed in their nation yet, and now they're hungry, and the person who's brought them out is Moses, and they've got a limited faith in the true God because He's kind of left them in slavery for 400 years, so I would not say they're close. And now they're hungry. When you're hungry and you're in that kind of situation as a nation, nothing good happens. And so they're thinking of turning on Moses. God is thinking it really turning on them, and, but they're asking God to take care of them. And so what God does is this. He says, it's going to be okay. Every morning you wake up, there's going to be some stuff on the ground. And when the dew leaves in the morning, there's going to be some white-like substance, almost like breadcrumbs. It's sort of like Hansel and Gretel. There's going to be these breadcrumbs. It's going to be like coriander seed, which is actually uh, native to that part of the world. And every morning you pick that up and you pick it up and and when the when the Israelites saw it, they're like they get up in the morning, they went out of their tent, they go, Mana, which means what is it? It's a question mark. What is it? They never seen anything like it. And they would pick it up and God said, just pick up enough for the day. Because if you pick up more than you need, he said, do twice on the weekend so you don't have to do it on the Sabbath. So it'd pick up enough for two days then, but he said if you try to keep it beyond that amount of time, it won't keep, it's going to spoil. And it was God's way of teaching them. He would be there for them every day. They could depend on him daily. He didn't want them to have a lot. He wanted to depend on them daily. So in the morning they had manna, at night they had quail. So they had quail stew, roast quail, probably quail pancakes made with manna, They they had every kind of recipe with manna and every kind of recipe with quail, but the point was you're only going to get what you need every day. And they were trained to depend on God. Also, in Jesus' era, economically, Many of the people who lived in the time of Jesus were relatively poor if they didn't still have their family's land from when they came into Israel there. And so day laborers were very common. People would sort of go to the market. You know, the the business owners would go there and say, hey, I need three of you today or I need five of you today. They would go. And the law protected them, rabbinic tradition. I'm not sure if this is in the Old Testament, but rabbinic law protected them because it recognized those people needed to be paid every day because they needed to be able to go to market and buy bread for the next day that night when they got their paycheck. They lived day to day. They live hand to mouth. I love this concept because it acknowledges God's provision for every one of us. It doesn't matter if you're a multimillionaire or if you're living paycheck to paycheck. God wants every one of his children to have a sense that God, I need you to take care of me. And even if you've taken care of me greatly and I'm wealthy, I'm acknowledging that that is your place in my life. And every day we say it to God. God. Give us this day our daily bread. God's provision for my life, for my future, for my kids, for their jobs, for their future spouses. Take care of us, God. And then there's confession, and this is a little confusing because of what Jesus tags on to the end. Forgive us our debts, sins viewed almost as debts, like a financial debt, just that analogy was used. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who've sinned against us. Now this word is not used here, but confession is a, sort of a compound word, homo legeo. Homo means same. Legeo means to say. So homo is the word for confession. We find it elsewhere in the Bible. It means we're saying the same thing as God. We're saying the same thing as God about our sin. So that's what confession is. But in this passage, in this prayer, it's somewhat a vertical prayer. You know, God forgive us our sins, but it's also as we forgive those around us. And what's interesting, the way this tag is, it almost looks like one is dependent upon the other. It looks like if we don't forgive the people around us, God isn't gonna forgive us, which makes our forgiveness almost based on our works. And it's kind of a confusing thing for many of us to look at it that way. So I think here's the way Jesus is trying to say this and it doesn't come across this way as cleanly as we would like. I believe this means when we shut off forgiveness and grace to others, we are typically also shutting it off to ourselves because when we shut off forgiveness and grace to others, we're operating on works mode with them. We move to earn it mode, which means we're probably doing that with God as well. When we won't be a conduit of forgiveness, we have a hard time being a conduit of forgiveness to ourselves. And finally, deliverance. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Praying about areas of weakness in our lives, acknowledging the cross, which had not yet happened, so Jesus doesn't mention that, but it's power in our lives. So this is how Jesus tells us to pray I believe this is meant to be the template. You can memorize it and use it that way, but I think you should memorize it and use each line as sort of a launching point for these different areas of our lives. It covers our horizontal relationships with people, covers our vertical relationship with God. We're praying for the world in this, we're praying for ourselves, we're praying for what we need. But the question is does it really matter? Does it change anything? Because I could show you books that try to make sense of two very complex issues. Number one, God's plan, which seems to be fixed in many ways. In other words, God's plan from time in the past into the future, uh, it looks like, you know, when he says he knows every hair of our head and it's numbered, which is not a miracle at all, by the way, so do I, God. God's plan and this other issue of prayer and free will which seem to indicate a flexible future. God's plan which at times seems to be described as fixed and prayer and free will which seem to indicate a flexible future. How do we integrate those two concepts? And I want to address it very simply. First I want to say Matthew doesn't address it. In fact, the Bible doesn't address it it's addressed in theology books where we're trying to make sense of two things that I'm not sure we can fully make sense of together. Unless you think you're God. Now Luke does this a little bit in another setting. And so I wanna steal ahead into Jesus' life a little bit. I said this is a chronological you know, rendering of the life of Christ. Well, I'm gonna cheat a little just because I'm gonna quote Jesus, okay? So Jesus is okay with me cheating a little on this. Luke 11, when he gives the shorter version of the Lord's Prayer, then he says, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves. For a friend of mine has come to me from a journey and I have nothing to set before him. And from inside he answers and says, Don't bother me. The door's already been shut. My children and I are in bed. I can't get up and give you anything. I tell you, even though he'll not get up and give him anything because he's his friend, yet because of his persistence, in other words, he's not going away, he's still ringing the doorbell before there was low voltage electricity. That's interesting. He's still ringing the doorbell. He says, because of that, you're gonna get up and give him as much as he needs. In other words, if you have a friend at your door in the middle of the night in the ancient world, and he wants bread because he's got somebody visiting from a far country, and there's no refrigeration, and he doesn't have any food for the next day, but his friend needs a meal at night, you're gonna give him what he wants because he's not gonna go away. He's gonna keep knocking on your adobe you know house until you answer. Doesn't matter, you're not gonna do it because he's a friend, you're gonna do it because he's annoying. And he's not going away. He's persistent. So I say to you, ask and it will be given to you, seek and you will find, knock and it will be opened to you. And all these verbs are in the present tense, which indicates you continue to ask, you continue to knock, you continue to seek. For everyone who asks receives, he who seeks finds, to him who knocks it will be opened. Suppose one of you fathers is asked by his son for a fish. Now, again, Jesus needs some better illustrations. I could help him with that, but he's not asking. What kid comes to his dad and says, hey, let me have a fish? And we're not talking about aquarium fish here. I think this is food, I'm guessing, okay. Comes to ask for a fish, will he not give him a snake instead of a fish? Will he? No. Or if he asks for an egg, will he not give him a scorpion? Will he? No. If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So here, right after the prayer sermon, Lord's Prayer, He says, this is the heart of God when we pray. This is what it looks like. See, the Bible never discusses this dilemma between God's plan and faith and prayer. Do you know why? Because the Bible assumes prayer works. It's always presented that way. The Bible doesn't put these these two very difficult concepts side by side and try to help us sort them out. They're both in the scripture, but the Bible assumes prayer works. And Jesus says our persistence will be rewarded. Couple apps, living on a prayer apps. One, am I developing the part of my spirituality that only God sees? Jesus, in all three of these illustrations, fasting, giving, prayer, was concerned that so much of what they did in their lives in those areas was observable. He says, when that's the case, there's probably not much there. So the question is, How much of this inner part of your spirituality that nobody sees are you developing? Second, is there a reason that I don't pray more? And I just think there's probably a few of them for some of us. Sin, you know, if you're kind of got some habitual problems in your life that you're not pleasing God with, you're gonna tend to be distant from God. You're gonna tend not to pray. Theological determinism. I think that's one. That's what I was talking about, where we kind of feel like it may not do any good. It seems like everything's going to happen the way God designed, and I'm not sure prayer really works. And maybe God just wants us to pray, so we're part of the system, and we're you know we're kind of we're pawns on a chessboard, but we're supposed to pray just out of obedience. How about past disappointments with God? You know, I prayed for this. My, my mom was dying or something and I prayed that God would heal her and he didn't or things like that where we're disappointed with what ended up being part of God's sovereign plan and it seemed like it didn't come through. Or how about patience? Because today we're in such a, a fast-paced world. I love this. Chelsea Wald writes, are you impatient with slow pokes and frustrated by waiting? If so, you'll identify with what Chelsea Wald wrote in a recent article. Not long ago, I diagnosed myself with a recently identified condition of sidewalk rage. It's most pronounced when it comes to a certain friend who is a slow walker. Last month, as we sashayed our way to dinner, I found myself biting my tongue thinking, I have to stop going places with her if I ever want to, like, get there. Slowness rage is not confined to the sidewalks. Slow drivers, slow internet, slow grocery lines, they drive us crazy. Slow things drive us crazy because the fast pace of society has warped our sense of timing. Things that our great-great-grandparents would have found miraculously efficient now drive us around the bend. I mean, think about it. You're waiting in the airport for two hours to get on a flight that's gonna take you overseas in maybe eight or 10 hours. You know, a trip that might have cost you six to eight months in the past and you're frustrated that you know, TSA isn't moving fast enough. Patience is a virtue that's been vanquished in the Twitter age. Make no mistake, society continues to pick up speed. In his book, Social Acceleration, Hartmut Rosa, there's a great boy's name, Hartmut, H-A-R-T-M-U-T, can't make that up. Hartmut Rosa informs us that the speed of human gov- um, movement from pre-modern times to now has increased by a factor of 100. Now think about how this has affected our lives. You're going to think this is great. It's not necessarily great. The speed of communications has skyrocketed by a factor of 10 million. Data transmission has soared by a factor of around 10 billion. A study found that even our walking speed has increased 10% from the 1990s. Wald concludes... So on a recent stroll with my slow walking friend, I think fondly of her charming sense of humor, our fun outings, her support during tough times. And as we walk languidly to a restaurant, I feel momentarily free of my sidewalk rage. Yet as this warm feeling passes over me in the restaurant, I begin quietly raging at the server, raging at the kitchen, and I'm even raging at my rage. Feels like it's lasting forever. See, I think that one of our problems with prayer is we don't often get quick solutions. And, and we're so used to now when we want something at home fast, we, just, you know, we put it in the microwave. We, we deal with things so quickly. You know, we, we can have you know, the tabs on my computer when I'm actively you know, involved in multiple things. There's about seven tabs on my computer and I can keep track of the whole sports world and my financial world and, and everything else, my email, all right in front of me and everything happens so quickly. And in that world, God is slow. And so we probably give up. When he's God and He can do anything. Is there a reason I don't pray more? Well, I commit, recommit to a better prayer life to a father who wants to say yes. When I was younger and my daughters were little, I probably told you this before, but I asked my wife if it'd be okay if I did all of their dress shopping. It wasn't because I really wanted to be in the dress department at J.C. JCPenney's, though people probably wondered. You don't want to be the creepy guy in the little girl's dress department. But I was because I knew that shopping for my kids' clothes was one of the only ways I connect with little girls. They were little creatures that I couldn't relate to in my you know, hunting, fishing, you know, sort of sports-oriented world. And I tried to. I mean, they took hunter safety. One of them hunted with me, shot a nice buck. The first day, she went out. The second one out with me. The third one, I think she just gave up on me. But the bottom line is I tried to pull them into my world, but that was a lot to ask of a girl. And so their world was dancing. And I think you all know, I, when you know, it is a sin if I dance. And so I couldn't relate to their world. So I asked Didi, can I buy their clothes so we can spend time together? And we'd go in the dress store, we'd go into JCPenney. And eventually my daughters figured out that I had a hard time saying no to them. <laughs> and so Sarah in particular, my firstborn, and the firstborn always thinks they're the third parent. You, you've got a firstborn, you get that. I mean, they, they have a different relationship with you than anybody else. And so, you know, she would be there with the two dresses she liked, and if you asked which one do you want, you know, and she'd look up with you those little blue eyes, both. And back then, money, money was an issue. I mean, we had four kids under five, which is possible without twins. It takes a lot of work. But four kids under five, and, you know, we, we were faithful to God, and we were trying to, you know, have a house, and so money was tight. So money was the reason I would probably say no at times to them. And what I wanna say is this. We're in heaven's vault. We're children of the king. How much more your heavenly father with unlimited power and unlimited resources and unlimited grace and mercy as the stories Jesus told wants to say yes when we persist with him in prayer. He says you're just regular people, you're humans. And you want to give your kids what they want. How much more your heavenly father? And how much do I and you leave heaven's fault alone? Untouched. Yet we're children of the king. He's our daddy. Who knows what we should be asking for? God, we thank you for your word. And I pray that each one of us would better develop this part of our lives, which is a reflection of our real relationship with you. And I pray that we would develop better prayer lives that, that connect with what you wanna do in the world, what you wanna do in our lives. I pray that we would ask for things that are important to you that we would ask for the salvation of those around us, that we would ask for how we can be connecting, that we would ask for you to open doors for us to be with those who need you, that you would take care of us, that we would see you as our Father who gives us our daily bread, that we would use prayer as a way to stay right with you and others, that you would develop in us the same kind of attitudes and perspectives that Jesus reflected in this prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.